Hey there, and welcome to a new episode of the Alfred and Max Chronicles. In today's episode, our guest Max will guide us in his journey through his education, the same education that brought him to where he currently is. So, without further ado, let's just dive straight into it and let Max do the talking. Well, um, as you know right now, I am a teacher in a college, aviation college, in Italy, and there's a long journey that brought me here. As a young boy, I was going to a high school in Pakistan, and after high school, I decided to go to USA. And to give you a perspective of that time, in those days, uh, there was no internet, there were no photocopy machines, there was nothing. So I went to the local American embassy and got a list of universities and brought that home. And my younger brother, I asked him to help me out. And how did he help me? This will be funny for the young generation. I wrote a letter and I said to my brother, look, here's a letter. I want you to write 20 letters like this. So basically my brother was my photocopy machine. And I told him I'll pay you one rupee for each letter. One rupee was a very small uh, amount of money at that time. And he did that. I wrote those letters. I put the names of universities. And I mailed these letters. And then after a month, I started getting responses from universities, the requirements. And uh, I decided I want to go to a good university. So I chose Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. I fulfilled the requirements in terms of TOEFL in those days, in terms of recommendation letters from my teachers, and the uh, financial responsibility from my mother, and on I went to U.S. Okay, and before that, did you attend just regular, like elementary school, high school? Yes, uh, I attended a Catholic school in Pakistan, uh, St. Paul's for my high school, and uh, Sacred Heart for my uh, primary education. And uh, there were great schools, great teachers. Uh, can you believe that I'm still in touch with some of those teachers? Wow. Even now, I mean, they're old and uh, they cannot hear me <laughs> very well. But I still occasionally call them. And I even have my daughter speak to some of them sometime. And they're very happy when they hear from me. And they remember me very well. So uh, it was a good experience. And did you have your path and at that time, was your like ideal path of what you were going to do in the future already um, made? Because you mentioned before that you wanted to become a software engineer. Yes. At that time, the path was totally different. I was convinced that I'm going to be a computer engineer or, uh, I mean, software engineer was uh, not a well-published term in those days. Computer engineer was more established. I wanted to become a computer engineer. And, uh, you know, I learned many things to become a computer engineer. I graduated from the university. And everything that I learned in that university, believe it or not, is all obsolete today. Oh, wow. So it must be like obsolete programming language. I mean, things developed a lot during the years. Yeah, can you imagine learning languages today? Languages like uh, Fortran, Pascal, BASIC. Uh, you don't need all these languages now. Nowadays, everything is so user-friendly. Anybody could write a code so easily. Anybody could do anything. But in those days, I learned all these languages. It was, uh, it was difficult, and it was quite interesting. 
but uh, it's all history now. And at that time, even considering your university, was there any like topics or subjects that really caught your attention? In terms of aviation, no. <laughs> no, no, still in that phase of the yeah, computer engineering. Uh, I was fascinated by computers. I was fascinated by uh, mainframe computers. I remember we uh, in our college we had the uh, mainframe called DECVAX, and we used to work on that mainframe. And I was fascinated by the amount of information it can hold and how quickly it can recall that information. And uh, in those days, I spent uh, $2,000 in those days to buy a PC. And if I tell you the specs of my PC, you will laugh. Could you yeah. tell us some? <laughs> Two floppy drives, five and a quarter floppy drives, a 360K memory, 640K RAM, and a CGA monitor. CGA means color graphics adapter. Okay. And a uh, modem, I can't remember exactly, 256 baud modem. Uh, was not, I mean, now these type of PCs are probably in museums, you know. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and I had an external hard drive, which uh, many of my uh, fellow students would come to my room just to see the hard drive. They were amazed at the size, the capacity of this hard drive, and they would ask me, Max, what will you do with all the storage? And I used to smile and say, well, I think I'm gonna need it. And that storage was 20 MB. <laughs> I have 8 GB now in my wristwatch, so it gives you perspective of how times have yeah, changed. Really yeah, really, developed a lot. And And you said that the whole computer was $2,000. Of course, $2,000 back then back was then. probably double yes. what it is today. Yes, yes. So it's also incredible the way that even cell phones, those old Nokias where they would just all open up or the brick ones would cost back in the day well, a lot of money. My first cell phone was the one that you carry like a briefcase. And you you have to carry it like you're carrying a briefcase and as you walk down the street people would stare and look at you and say oh this guy has a cell phone it was such a big deal you know the ones you're talking about came later on you know much later on the flip phones the bricks the uh, you know all those different types of phones the nokias of that time and all that you know yes technology has evolved times have changed you know cell phones have replaced so many things we don't use alarm clocks anymore. We don't use radios anymore. We don't use televisions anymore. So after all that, you went to aviation. And did you notice that any of the notions and things you learned were still helpful? Or did you just clear everything? Well, I, uh, when you're becoming a computer engineer, you have a good background in mathematics and a little bit of physics also. Um, so that helped because they, these were the subjects I took in my college and my high school also. They help not in terms of flying an airplane, but they help in understanding the concept behind airflow and the wings and the load factors and uh, things like that, and your speeds, your airspeed, your ground speed, and stuff like that. But directly helping, uh, probably not. Okay. And uh, you discovered the path of aviation right after you had your degree and was working in an airport. Yeah. After I graduated, I moved to California. And when I got there, I was desperate for a job. And the first job I got was fueling airplane at the airport. And 
it did not really uh, uh, it did not really coincide with the degree I had but I was new in the country I mean I had just graduated didn't even have a green card at the time so it was difficult to find a job in my field and I took it and the money was good and there I met a pilot from Pakistan and he said uh, once I was fueling his airplane he said Max why don't you learn how to fly and I said, well, come on, you know, flying is very expensive and it's not really my cup of tea. And he offered to give me a free lesson at a local school, a local flight school in Santa Monica, California, where he used to teach in his spare time. So I took him up on his offer. I went to that school. And when I went up with him for the first uh, flight in a Cessna 172, as the plane took off from the ground and I could see the distance increasing between the ground and myself, I said to myself, ah, this is what I want to do. And that's really good because most people don't even know what they want to do. Yeah. So after that, what were the steps that you needed to take in order uh, to become a official pilot? Good question, good question. Now, aviation in U.S. is a bit different than aviation in Europe. Now I teach in Europe. I can see the way things work here. But, uh, you know, a simple path is private license, instrument license, commercial license, and then ATP, or here in Europe we call ATPL, Airline Transport Pilot. Between commercial license and ATP, there are many steps you can take to kind of jumpstart the hours required and the training required. You can become a certified flight instructor, CFI. You can become, you can become a multi-engine instructor, MEI. Uh, you could become a flight engineer in those days and then work your way up towards ATP. Uh, in Europe, uh, you can take an ATP written exam after your commercial license. And then once you get to 1,500 hours, you can take the ATP practical exam. In U.S., the practice is usually to complete the 1,500 hours and then take the written and the practical exam at the same time. So once you have an ATP, um, you can pretty much start applying for a job at a local uh, smaller airlines. I started applying for jobs after my commercial license. I worked as a, um, you know, a pipeline patrol pilot. I used to patrol these pipelines in Southern California and Central California. Uh, I, I worked as a crop duster, uh, spraying chemicals on farms uh, four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> that was the most stressful job. I did uh, banner towing on the beaches in Southern California. Banner towing? Yeah, banner towing is when you fly in the air uh, at very low speeds and there's a message behind your airplane and a big banner and as okay. you're flying people can read that message and there's a run of beaches in southern california starting from santa monica santa monica next beach is el segundo after el segundo manhattan beach after manhattan redondo after redondo hermosa after hermosa palos verdes there's like a 10 15 mile stretch so i would fly over these beaches on the weekend and uh, I can't remember, it was Pete's Pizza, all you can drink beer and all you can eat pizza for nine ninety nine or something. So let's say that before becoming a pilot, like people think of it as bringing people around, you first did these small jobs like crops 
crop dusting crop dusting yeah. and the banner banner towing banner towing i also did skydiving flights i would take 20, 10 12 people up in the air in southern california they would jump off with their parachutes i would come back and take 10 more on the weekends the idea for all these jobs is to build your time to get to 1500 hours so you can take the atp exam so how are these hours counted they is there like a way to certify them before? Yes. Inside the airplane, there's a, a meter called the Hobbs meter. Okay. And this meter tracks how much time the engine was running uh, when you're flying the airplane. There's a Hobbs meter and there's a tack meter, but the ones we follow is the Hobbs meter for time. And uh, when you fly the airplane, you fill in the logbook of the airplane. You fill in your own logbook with the airplane identification and the Hobbs times. And based on that, you calculate how much time you spent in the air and what type of time, nighttime, daytime, uh, you know. Uh, What's time. the difference between those two? Well, you know, night is slightly more difficult than daytime because, you know, you don't have too much visual reference. So it's considered more quality time. Similarly, when you're flying in foggy conditions, uh, icy conditions, extreme cold weather, that's considered quality time also. So um, when the airlines uh, look at your logbook, they see how much time you've spent at night, how much time you've spent in IMC conditions, which is instrument meteorological conditions. Uh, this gives them an idea of uh, the quality of your time. And does quality time weigh more or does it count as just well, regular hours? It, it weighs more in terms of your level of experience. Imagine if you're in sunny Southern California and you always fly in the sunny weather and you have the 1,500 hours versus somebody else who has 1,500 hours, but they have flown at night, they have flown in icy conditions, they have flown in fog, and bad weather. So they're exposed to more elements of nature than somebody So they're gonna be probably preferred? They're going to be preferred, yes. And all this is to build up hours in order to, let's say, do more complex tasks, like bringing in more people uh, all this is to do more complex tasks and also to get to a certain experience level before you can take the next big test, which is the ATP. Okay. And um, as you said, the path is pretty linear. So depending on where you are, US or Europe, yeah, there is a specific path. And in both of them, you need to build up hours. In both of them, the ultimate thing, Alfredo, is to get to ATP. Okay. Once you have the ATP, yeah, then you can, you know, start applying. It's safe to say you can start applying for a job at an airline. Uh, you can start, legally, you can start getting paid once you have a commercial license. But usually airlines don't hire you with that little experience. They want to see more experience. So even when you get jobs after your commercial license, there are jobs where you are a cadet. Like in Europe, Ryanair will do that. A um, couple other airlines, EasyJet would do that. They would hire you as a cadet and they would pay you less, but you get the experience. And then in US, you would do things like you would work as a uh, flight instructor, you would work as a crop duster, you would work as a banner towing pilot, things like that. So let's say at, at an ideal last stage, you would end up becoming a proper commercial pilot, bringing, uh, let's say, those large flights with a lot of people, a couple hundreds of people. Well, yeah, the thing is, once you do your ATP, you start with a smaller airline, you fly smaller planes, 
Uh, when I say smaller, I mean maybe 60 capacity, 80 capacity, depending on the airline, depending what type of fleet they have, okay. Usually, um, most airlines operate a Boeing 737 or the Airbus A320. These are the two most popular airplanes. But if you're working for a regional carrier, they could have Embraer's, they could have Fokker's, uh, carrying 30 people, 40 people, 50 people, or whatever. And then you work your way up from there. Okay. You work towards uh, Boeing 737 type airplanes, and you work your way up from there to uh, airplanes carrying 200 plus people, like an Airbus A340, 330, 300, um, a Boeing 777, uh, 757, 767, so on. You know, so you grow your career with time, with experience, and uh, with exposure to the elements, all elements of an airline job. So let's say that you never stop learning, even when you're already reaching ah, a certain stage. Good question, Alfredo. And flying, you are learning every day. You are learning in every flight. You're constantly being trained, retrained, uh, evaluated all the time. You're going through a medical checkup every six months. So many things are happening all the time. So it's an ongoing journey all your life. Really good. I'm really, um, that's really good. I really hope that the, um, the things that you're saying today can really help people get motivated, even especially the young ones, mm. into maybe taking part in a similar journey, just as you. And uh, who knows, maybe some future pilots are listening this Well, episode. I hope so. I hope so, because uh, aviation is my passion. I am thankful to God for having the opportunity to fly an airplane and get that feeling. And uh, I've been to 54 different countries because of my aviation experience. And I tell you, it's the best thing in the world. I, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything else. And uh, I encourage the young pilots to look at this career. It's a great career. Uh, you meet a lot of new people. You make a lot of friends. Uh, you are on a journey all your life. You are learning. You are studying. It's fascinating. You know, the technology, uh, the way things happen in aviation. And I highly encourage everybody. And there are many ways to accomplish this task, okay? Uh, this is one thing maybe you want to tell your audience that, it's not just about going to U.S. to become a pilot or just staying in Europe to become a pilot. You could be in Malaysia. You could be in Africa. You could be anywhere in the world, and you could still accomplish this task. And uh, there, are, I'll be happy to answer any questions if someone writes to you. Of course. If they need any guidance about, uh, depending on what part of the world they are in and what is their budget, uh, and uh, then I can suggest to them what they should do to become a commercial pilot. So, Max, thank you so much for the great advice today. Uh, I'd suggest that we should call it a day, and uh, we're going to focus on our next episode in especially taking a career into aviation. And in that episode, you'll also give some valuable advice to people who want to start this type of journey. Yeah, that's a good idea because I think we need a complete podcast just to uh, discover aviation and different paths in aviation and how to go about them. So thank you for your time today. Perfect. From Alfred and Max, this is all. And we will see you in the next episode of the Alfred and Max Chronicle.